And welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell. That's Randall Carlisle. And our guest, Carl, we're going to get to in just a second. Carl, you are the first one in our new studio. Congratulations. This is... I'm honored. This is big... Do you like it? Yeah, I do. Well... Carl, we're, Carl's got some amazing stories we're going to get to in a second. But uh, anyway, this is our new studio. I don't know if we're going to be staying here or not. But um, it, uh, I like it, and this is actually my office as well. Oh. So, you know, I... Okay. Well, the sound is good. The sound is good. I don't good. know if you can hear it out there, but it's dead sound. It's like a normal studio as opposed to the echoey sound that we normally have. So You're 100% right, and yeah. that's my desk where I accomplish nothing all day. Yeah. So It doesn't look like a well-used desk. <laughs> well, it's so, a well-sat-in. Yeah, it's just really not well. accomplishing <laughs> anything. So uh, you, last on our last show, you had just sent out a press release to the news stations in town and the newspapers about the fact that at Odyssey House the majority of the new people coming in were alcohol as opposed to drug addicted. That got a lot of play. It got a lot of play. All four TV stations covered it. And and the trend has continued because I only examined statistics from May 1st through June 15th, uh, but it's continuing. And it just, uh, normally we have about an 80-20 split uh, uh, with the 80 being primarily opiates and meth and 20 being alcohol, and now it's, it's, it's just reversed. And, it, and, it's, uh, and I'm not sure what the explanation is. Uh, that was my question. It, it, yeah. You know, there's speculation that because people are staying home and told to isolate, which is the opposite of what we as alcoholics are told not to do, <laughs> that perhaps that's part of it. And then there was some speculation from one of our therapists, because I was talking about it, is that if you are trying to control your drinking and let's say you're a functional alcoholic like I was, <coughs> like I am, but I don't drink now, but does, am I still a functional alcoholic then? Or you're a highly functional or, since okay. you were here and, early. <laughs> anyway, there's speculation that somebody who's trying to control their drinking, that it would normally be controlled by the fact that they have to go to work from, say, 8 to 4 or 9 to 5, and they're sitting at home, working from home, and they're looking at the bottle of vodka and a Bloody Mary mix saying, mm, you know, I could do this at 10 or <laughs> ten or 11 in the morning. Nobody's going to smell my breath. Uh, nobody's going to notice anything, and that perhaps that's encouraging it too. But there's no, you know, there's no, it, this is all anecdotal. So it's just the, fa- the statistics at Odyssey just show that there's a greater number of people coming in to treat their alcohol problems now than there has been in like the last 10 or 15 years. It is a huge switch and access is the important thing. Well, let's get introduce our guests and then we'll do a little bit of a round table. But Carl's been a friend of mine for about six months. We go to the same morning meeting up by the U of U on Sundays. And now what's funny is we all sit outdoors. The coffee you mean the big, the, the big meeting at uni? No, 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 no. no. Oh. This is I was going to say, how could you do that outdoors? But. <laughs> this is a coffee shop, and we sit out since the weather has turned, but the coffee shop doesn't open till 9, so people see us sitting outside. They assume the shop's open. They pull up, and they bang on the door, but they're very nice to us, and they let us meet there, and it's a lot of good social distancing, but good people. And you've been invited. You, We would love to have you up, but unfortunately, at 7.30 in the morning on Sundays. On Sunday? Yeah. I mean, I'm up now. I get up at 6 in the morning. I didn't used to get up till 11 or 12. So <laughs> it's one of the benefits of sobriety and recovery. You know. it, 
I do you wake up in a good mood every morning? Pretty much, because well, especially at my age, I'm happy I'm alive. You know, I can, I look around and I go, yeah, okay, this is still my house and I'm still breathing. Thank God, <laughs> you know. So that is the one thing about being sober, and I don't know if this is the case with you, Carl, but I wake up in a good mood every morning. I generally do after my fourth cup of coffee. Okay. <laughs> and I have iced coffee right by the bed. It takes me a little while to get going. So, Carl, you've had a very interesting story. Just to give you a quick thumbnail, out of college at Westminster, he was hired to work for one of the biggest consulting groups, went over to Europe and lived, came back, got a chance. He and his wife, who's a physician, went up to Alaska, and she, if I'm not mistaken, opened 17 different clinics. Correct. And wow. while you were there, you got into... Being a consultant, and you work from some amazing people, including Sarah Palin. <laughs> you but, had to do it, didn't you? Well, I just wanted to mention her name. She, I always thought she was pretty attractive. But I thought so too. Yeah, oh, I, yes. you oh. know, you don't get many great-looking um, people running for vice president. Not that you know Joe Biden wasn't a very handsome man <laughs> when he was running. How did? Talk to us a little bit about your history with alcohol and sure. how, how you started and how you get clean. Sure. Early on, I think, uh, generally speaking, a lot of us alcoholics were in our early teens, uh, mid-teens. And I had, uh, I had moved here from, uh, uh, from Cuba. Uh, Cuba? Yeah, that's where I was born. Wow. And uh, we, my mother was a single mother. Way before her time, never had no idea who my father was. And we moved here when I was six. It's not Fidel. No. Okay, just checking. <laughs> and Carl uh, Castro, it has good <laughs> alliteration there. I, we I lived know. behind the uh, cotton bottom. Okay. And my mother was a, uh, a server at the cotton bottom and the Canyon Inn. Sure. And that was the lifestyle. Those, those yeah. were some of my favorite haunts. That Cotton Bottom was my haunt. Yeah, and, well, you probably recognize my mom. I, I love that place. Yeah, and she got married uh, when I was eight, and uh, my stepdad came with two older brothers. So I all of a sudden I had two stepbrothers, and then they had two kids, and all of a sudden we had five boys in the family, and I was the middle, the middle child. And one of my older brothers, when I was around 12, uh, he was a little wild, a couple of years older than me, and uh, uh, introduced me to beer. And uh, my dad was a, uh, a f my stepdad was a functional alcoholic, and so we started stealing from the cabinet. And uh, I think when it really started, and later on, I'll fast forward. We all, uh, I think, as alcoholics, we finally understand why we drank. Uh, that's not important at the beginning, but uh, eventually we get around to that. And uh, uh, I drank because I was, it was an antidote to fear. I was afraid of everything. And like what? Girls, self-esteem, my position in my, you know, my, my orbit of friends. Uh, was I a good enough athlete? Was I good enough at academics? was like any good at all and and never really felt I measured up to my uh, my social circle see I, that's it's interesting you mentioned that because that's why I enjoyed drinking because I was really insecure around girls and when I had a couple of drinks I was no longer insecure let me oh. tell you a little story this is where it really struck home uh, 
when I was 14, we would go out to Draper. And in those days, in the late 60s, there was a, there was a pavilion. And Draper at that time was nothing like Draper is Farmland. now. Farmland. <laughs> Farmland. Yeah. And, I mean, there wasn't a stoplight in town. Wow. And there was one stop sign. And there was one little movie theater, I think a couple of bars and a bunch of churches. But they had this park. And in the middle of the park, there was this pavilion. And it was a wooden pavilion with a wooden dance floor. And on Friday and Saturday nights, they used to have these dances out there, these rock bands. And uh, we would go out there. And I remember the first time I went out there, I'm 14. Everybody else is anywhere from 16 to 25, 30. And everyone's dancing and partying. And, and everyone sits on the fence you know, around the pavilion. And... Uh, and dances and has a good time. And I wanted to dance so bad, and I couldn't do it. I could not ask a girl to dance. I was petrified. And uh, my brother and, and uh, his friends, we went out to their car, and we had a, they had a fifth of Jim Beam. So we took a couple of tokes off the Jim Beam and, and shared a joint and uh, went back out to the dance floor and I had enough nerve to ask a girl to dance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fifteen minutes later, back out to the car, a couple of swigs off the gym beam, split another joint. If it's good enough to get one girl to dance, <laughs> a couple more hits, and you can get three or four. Go back out to the pavilion, and by God, I'm John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah. you thought you were. I thought I was. <laughs> and, and then... I'm not supposed to swing this chair. Yeah, well, that's what he's, he's trying me. to tell Yeah, I'm not. But. By the way, I'm not touching Carl's leg. And this no, is the fine. side of the. Yeah, just, but it's not that type of show. But, go uh, but by the third time, I was giving, le- giving lessons. <laughs> you know? And in reality, I probably looked like a dead chicken or a dying chicken. <laughs> yeah. But I had enough nerve. And, and ever since then, every time I ask a girl out, I had to be intoxicated. Uh, I couldn't go to the prom without being intoxicated because I was scared to death of how I would appear. Was I tall enough? Was I good looking enough? Pimples, you know, the whole nine yards. And uh, from then on in, every time I was in a situation uh, that was anything remotely stressful, I would drink. And uh, For how many years? uh, For a few years, through high school, through college. And I got the best job in the world for an alcoholic when I got out of college. I got a job with a consulting firm that sent me to Paris <laughs> to research the alcohol industry. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and this was before microbreweries right. and micro distilleries. And that's what was our job. The theory was uh, for the Department of Commerce was, with the funder was research the European alcohol industry and can that be replicated in the United States as a rural economic development initiative. So our crew, and that came along with uh, a master's degree. We were at the, uh, uh, the university, American University in Paris. And so we'd go to school for a while, and then we'd hit the road for a week, and we'd travel around Europe. Checking the alcohol industry. Ch- checking, <laughs> checking the alcohol industry. And when I was in... It's a job made in <laughs> heaven for an alcoholic. <laughs> and when I was in Cortina, I woke up in my hotel room one day in, in, a, in a pile of vomit. And this is before cell phones. It was just landlines. And I had no idea where my crew was. 
And I was just a member. I was the head of the crew. I was just, you know, I mean, I was a paper pusher, you know, taking notes and, and feeding them into, a, you know, with typing them up at the end of the night and then faxing them off. And uh, I didn't know where my, uh, my crew was. But my dad was about, at that time was in AA. He was in, he was in recovery. Uh, was a member of the original Sugar House Men's Group, uh. and this is with Bud Blumenthal and Dick Carter, and uh, Tony Pereira and a few other folks. So I knew that he had an answer where I could go, and so I called him up, and he didn't. He had no idea where I, what I should do because <laughs> I was in Europe. But he said, you know, let me do some homework and. About an hour later, he called me back and said, there, there's actually AA in Paris. Long story short, I found my crew, got back to Paris, and walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And for the next uh, five years, I stayed sober. I uh, went to meetings every day. Uh, my sponsor uh, was a French guy who didn't speak English very well, and I didn't speak French very well. And we got along really well. <laughs> did you call him every day? I did. We, we met almost every day unless I was on the road. But uh, the gig ended. Uh, the, the study was completed, got my master's degree, and I, and I didn't want to come back to Utah. I didn't want to come back to the United States. Uh, I loved Europe. I was having a great time, even in sobriety. And I was, again, that fear that fear of coming back to the unknown and I knew I was going to drink and it was intentional and when we, they dropped me off at the airport and went straight to the bar and drank all the way back to Salt Lake and stayed uh, stayed intoxicated for the next nine years until 1989 Wow! that same consulting firm I got a job here uh, uh, with the state uh, doing investigative work and don't swing the chair that's right (laughs) uh got a that same consulting firm uh offered a offered me a position doing essentially similar research up in alaska uh different product uh, completely wasn't on the alcohol industry or anything like that but it was on uh rural economic development and actually bringing uh the native villages into the 20th century Hmm. And I knew if I went up there and I went to work for this consulting firm, I could not do it intoxicated. Fortunately, but my, yet you could work, Carl. You could work for the state of Utah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hammered, <laughs> hammered. Um, at that time, cocaine was prevalent in this town uh, in the uh, late uh, mid '80s, uh, right. late '80s. It was everywhere, and law enforcement lawyers, doctors, yes. everybody yes. was using it. It was almost this accepted white-collar drug that no one was really going to bust you for. And uh, But when I got that f- phone call from the consulting company, I knew I had to, I knew I had to, and I knew where to go. So I, I jumped into AA. Uh, I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic. Didn't care I was an alcoholic. Uh, and I thought I was probably going to die in my 40s. Wow. Uh, and didn't care because it was alleviating that fear. Uh, and I was a high-performing alcoholic. I could, 
I could. Uh, so was Randall. So was Randall. Yeah. 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 I could do yeah. my work. Same uh, here. I could get up, uh, you know, carried a little vial of Visine in my pocket to get out to red and, and uh, a lot of mouthwash and uh, gum and stuff like that. No spray. No spray. <laughs> And so I went up to Alaska. I uh, I got sober and uh, and and uh, been in sobriety ever since. Hmm. Uh, since August fourth, nineteen eighty nine. Well, what's interesting about your story and kind of the misnomer is that you have to hit bottom before you can get into recovery and make it stick. But in your case, you didn't hit bottom. You knew you were functioning. You could have gone on that way. Your liver wouldn't have been happy. But you made a determination that getting this job, going to Alaska, forced a change, and you didn't have to hit bottom. You could do it. My, I did hit bottom, and it was more of an internal work. I knew my integrity. I lost my integrity. Uh, I lied all the time. Uh, Three-day weekends when I should have been, you know, right. didn't coming in on Monday until noon, not coming in on Monday, leaving early on Friday, still performing, but lying, and I, my wife didn't trust me. Uh, my close friends didn't trust me. My integrity was lost, and that that was my bottom. And I knew if I went back to work for this consulting firm, I couldn't do it intoxicated. And 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 the kind of work I was going to be doing, going from native village to native village to native village, to um, measure where they were in terms of infrastructure and what they needed. Did they want it? And uh, I had to be sober. I couldn't do it intoxicated. Was there an alcohol problem with the indigenous people up there or not? Uh, yes, and okay. there still is. Okay. And it's prevalent everywhere. It's not just the indigenous folks. Uh, you can make a lot of money uh, selling alcohol to the indigenous folks in the villages up there because a lot of the villages are dry. Uh, so you go to Fairbanks or you go to Anchorage and you buy a, a fifth of Jim Beam for $23 and you can sell it for $200 in a wow. village. Hmm. So you can pedal. Our next business. Yeah, I was going to say. Will you send us a list of villages? <laughs> yeah. But uh, recovery has been very good to me. Uh, the first 10 years I was in recovery, I was, I think I did it incorrectly. I mean, I stayed sober, but... Uh, Again, I was feeding my ego. I was like Mr. Mr. Recovery my first 10 years. Wanted to chair every meeting, wanted to be the secretary, GSR, uh, <laughs> a delegate to the national convention, delegate to an international convention. And, uh, and after, after about 10 years of this, I realized I didn't have any, I didn't have any sponsees, folks that I was mentoring. But I was doing really good work. <laughs> yeah. And what it was, it was all about me. Yeah, I was going to say. It was yeah. really all about yeah. me. It was, it was what I was, I was doing, the same thing I was doing when I was drinking. I was padding my resume. I was making it look, I was looking good. And it, it, I did some good work. I got to work with uh, Representative Kennedy on the 2008 Parity Act which brought the insurance carriers up to speed for, for uh, you know, funding folks that needed to be in recovery and it needed to be at a treatment center because prior to that, the insurance rates were really poor. Yeah. 
if he had it at all. And uh, Representative Kennedy and some of the other people in the Senate, his dad, of course, was very influential in that, that legislation. So there were some good things done, but that wasn't my motive. My motive was, you know, look at me. And it was really funny because working as a delegate, I mean, I wanted to move to New York City and work for, you know, work for AA and uh, be influential and hang out in D.C. And, and again, it wasn't, it wasn't about, it was all about me. And one day I realized it, uh, I think in 1999, 2000, and uh, I stopped doing all that. I just let it go. I rarely chair a meeting anymore. And the best work that I can do with other alcoholics to this day is just pick up that phone and, and speak one-on-one on my front porch or in my backyard patio and talk about recovery. Uh, to me, that's the highlight of service work. Um, and since that day, um, occasionally when I'm watching Netflix, like, uh, you know, The Blacklist or something like that, and they're pour a nice shot of bourbon or whatever, my mouth just automatically waters. Really? Yeah. yeah. Huh. Not very often. It's been 31 years by my count. be 31 years August 4th. Wow. But who's counting? Yeah. We're going to take a short break. We're listening to Carl's story. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Odyssey House Journals. That's Randall Carlisle, a highly functioning <laughs> alcoholic during I, his news I days. was that. Yes. But you didn't, and Carl, we joke about this all the time. I, on the other hand, would have a couple shots before doing a game. And Carl, I mean, Randall never did. I had really strong boundaries, I, but it was a perfect, you said you had the perfect job for an alcoholic. I did too, because I didn't have to be at work till two in the afternoon. Mm. And then I got, after the 10 o'clock news, I could stay out till whenever and get as drunk as I wanted to, but I never drank in the morning and I never drank before I went to work or during work. And so I had enough time to sober up that I didn't have to worry about breath mints or anything else. And I didn't smell and my eyes were okay. And, and it, it just worked out. It, it's a perfect job as well for Did your a functioning alcoholic. Well, I think everybody knew I drank like crazy, but whether... You know, where do you draw the line? How do you define, because my, my wife at the time would say, you're an alcoholic, and I'd say, no, I like to drink. Uh, and, and how do you draw the line? I know now, I mean, it's when you can't stop after one or two beers or whatever, and you drink everybody's empty glass and that kind of stuff. But I don't know whether people considered me an alcoholic or just a wild partier. I don't know. Well, and, and that's the tough one. And, and you were mentioning, Carl, watching a TV show and, and having that twinge. There was a great TV show on HBO called Veep. At one point, mm-hmm. they were about to have a drink, and one of the characters, a consultant to Julia Louise Dreyfus, looks at the drink, looks at his watch, and says it's 9 a.m. somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> <Pounds Yeah. him. laughs> yeah. And it's funny how we alcoholics can come up with excuses sure. to make sure. anything happen. but. You know, you can make a strong argument that if you're doing the news stone cold sober every day, you don't have a problem. You could make that argument, and I did. <laughs> you know, but yeah, but, I justified the same thing to a certain degree. I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic, but again, I I never drank in the morning. I never drank on the job. 
uh, I had my boundaries. Yeah, and, me too. And uh, and it worked. Until, yeah. You know, until I got that that offer to go to Alaska. Now, you, how did you talk your your wife as a physician? How did you talk her into going to Alaska? Oh, she was up for it. She was. Yeah. And in her case, opening seventeen health clinics for indigenous peoples. I mean, that she is really doing the Lord's work in that respect. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a good it was a good uh, it was a good deal for everybody and uh, I miss it. I'm I still go to Alaska during the summers. I spend I'm a professional ski bum now, uh. so I spend my winters here and and I spend my summers in Alaska except for this summer. Uh, I started working. Uh, I'm retired, but I, I took on a, a position in Denali National Park. Oh. Beautiful place. Yeah, it is. And uh, because of COVID-19, I couldn't go up this summer, so I'm, ah. I'm stuck here uh, trying to figure out what to do with my my summer. <laughs> Can't ski right now. No. Which is really good, though, because uh, on the 24th, 25th, and 26th of July, there's a group of us, 12 of us, that are going down to Schofield Reservoir, and we're going to go through the traditions for three days. Wow. Intensively. For those of you watching who don't and don't know, AA has uh, twelve steps and twelve traditions. Right. So that's what Carl's talking about. Yeah. I'm and making the assumption that everybody knows what I'm talking about. No. Well, it, it's funny because we have uh, we've had up to twelve thousand listeners for a podcast for this podcast on the audio side, and the show reaches out to a lot of people, and we have many viewers and listeners who don't know anything about recovery programs but might be interested just on an intellectual phase or more probably more probably have someone they know. Sure. And that's and, primarily what it is, I think. Yeah, you and know. this is a chance to take a look at someone they've known for 30 or 40 years and who is, you know, in Randall's case, left Channel 4 with years left on his contract and decided to go work for Odyssey House and, as you say, never have had a bad day no, since. No, it's the best job I ever had. You know. And... In my case, this is one small way that I can give back because AA is really a function of everyone who's part of it giving back and trying to help. And it can be a small thing. It can be a large thing. And in your case, your best sobriety was when you become a sponsor to people? Not necessarily a sponsor. I call it I, – I don't like the word sponsor, frankly. I prefer the phrase accountability partner. Uh, that sounds very consulting-ish. Yeah, it, it probably does. does. Yeah. Um, but I have to be s accountable to somebody. And it can't just be a nefarious higher power. You know, it has to be a live person for me. It has to be someone that I can uh, feel safe with. And I've been very fortunate. I've, uh, I've had the same accountability partner my entire time. Uh, we're very good friends. Uh, the guy in France? No. Oh. The guy up in, in, in uh, Alaska. Okay. And we've been business partners a couple times. Okay. Uh, I don't think that's necessary. Uh, in fact, I would even, for some people, I'd argue not to go that route. <coughs> but for us, it, it worked out real well. And uh, But that one-on-one -on -one conversation, if you can get if – if the conversation can turn to intimacy – where you're really being honest with one another and being open, uh, to me, that's the highest form of, of, of working in recovery. Rigorous honesty. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of rigorous honesty, we honesty we have hit our time. Let's give out the number to call if you want to get a hold of someone at Odyssey House. Yeah, not necessarily to come into Odyssey, but if you have any questions about someone you know or love who's an addict or yourself, 801-322-3222. And again, call that number and the people there will give you advice. There are so many people in the state of Utah that literally are working to help people get sober get off drugs and have an amazing life. Yep. And in Carl's case, you went back out again, which is our term for starting drinking again and came back in and coming up on 31 years. And it it is amazing. And I always feel bad at meetings thinking, what would I have been like if I never had this disease? You never know. Well, and uh, and just, not worth looking back on exactly we, yeah. we, we have it you know. exactly we yeah. can step forward thanks for watching I want to thank everyone involved lee who normally spins the dials and does all the magic chris helping us out today bill at francis at comcast thanks to you and for everyone watching we appreciate it and we'll see you next time thanks